Welcome to Frontline Church, South OKC's podcast, where each week we upload a new sermon from our sermon series. If you have any questions or concerns or need prayer for anything, feel free to reach out at hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis 1, 26 through 31. The word of God speaks to us. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. This is God's word to us. Amen. Good morning. Good to see you guys. You can take a seat. How are you? Good to see you. If you don't know me, my name is Sean. I get to serve as executive pastor here at Frontline South. Pastor Andrew is not here today. He is actually up in Collins, Maxwell, Iowa, serving Sacred Mission Church, our friends up there, our sister church that we planted a few years ago. So, man, be praying for them as you think about it. He's getting to serve them today. Hey, if you're just joining us, uh, we are at the very beginning of a series teaching through the book of Genesis. So the reason that we are going all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, the very first book right now, is because We are living in a time, I don't know if you uh, recognize this, we're living in a time where as a people, we are trying to rewrite our origin story. We're trying to decide ourselves, who are we? Where do we come from? What is our purpose? And I just want to say, as the people of God, man, we got to open up the Bible today because we don't get to do that. The truth is, our origin story has already been given to us. And it's a better story that you or I get to write. And so we've got to come back, though. We've got to remember. And we've got to say, hey, what is, our, what is our place? Why are we here? Where did we come from? And we just think that for the next few weeks, Genesis is going to give us some really clear answers to those questions. And I think today, uh, in this text, it's going to help us move down that road. So would you pray with me? And then we'll dive into God's word. Father, we're grateful. As we come to your word today, we open it up with humility, and where we're not humble, we ask God that you would humble us. And we, uh, we just want to say, God, we confess that there are places in our lives where we try to write our own story, where we try to make sense of things based on our own circumstances without coming to you and what you've already said. And so today, even as we look at this idea of being created in your image, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray, God, that you would take a a simple truth that maybe a lot of us have heard for a long time and you'd do some new things. You'd open up our eyes. You'd open up our our hearts to hear from you in a a new way. And, God, we just, we pray that where we would come and we would try to impose our own ideas on what you've already said, we ask that you'd give us the grace and the courage to just bow and say, God, you're, you're the creator of all things. We bow before you 
your word is above our words, and uh, we ask that you'd help us to see that, ask that you'd help us to obey and, uh, and understand your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in 2005, my first son was born after having two beautiful girls, and the truth is the labor and delivery was just a little bit different. <laughs> um, Liam was stuck really stuck. And he was stuck by his face. And so we worked really hard late into the night. And when I say we, I mean my wife and the doctors and the nurses. And somehow I was still exhausted, but we worked really hard. And uh, when he finally arrived, uh, his face was super bruised and he had like two foreheads and they were cleaning him off. And the nurses handed him to me. And for the first time, I got to lay eyes on my son, who I love. And, um, and I'm thinking about the, the truth that this child was created out of the love that my wife, has, my wife and I have for one another. And they handed him to me, and I looked at him, and all I could think is, wow, he is really ugly. <laughs> like, is, is this permanent? <laughs> um, the girls did not look like this. Is he going to be okay? Uh, he's all right now. Uh, amazingly, the next day he looked totally different. And the day after that, he looked different again. In like two weeks, people are coming to visit us and they're like, what a beautiful baby. Um, he, he has your eyes. He has, his, he has his mother's chin. He has your nose. He looks just like you. And I think a lot of us have experienced this. And we, and we started to hear the same things when our other sons we're born. Before you know it, people are telling us how much the kids look like us. And that's happening even to this day. And I think it's one of the most fun things in the world as a parent to know that wherever your children go, wherever they scatter across the whole world in some way, they are carrying a representation of you. And then you get older and, and tell me if this isn't true. You start to notice yourself doing the things that your parents did and saying things the way that your parents said them. My wife has told me and others uh, in our family have told me that our boys, who are all teenagers now, walk just the way that I walk. I'm like, I didn't know that I had a walk. I don't, I don't know what that means. I didn't know that I had a walk. But they say that they walk just like me. And I've heard some of you say, like, something will happen in my life. Something, some circumstance will happen. And what will come out of my mouth will be my own mother's words and my own mother's voice. And I'm horrified. <laughs> I've heard you guys say that. And I understand. Well, today, as we continue the story of Genesis, we come to one of the biggest themes in all of Scripture, which is the, the doctrine of the Imago Dei. The image of God, and this is a simple truth, that we have been created in the image of, made to look like God our Father. And we're reading this right now on purpose because this unlocks for us some answers that I think our culture has been asking and some questions that our, our culture continues uh, to ask. And we come to the scriptures and we come to read the Bible and what we see is the Bible is actually reading us, isn't it? Like we're coming with our own questions and what we find is the scriptures already have answers for the questions that we've been asking. So our culture says things like, hey, why is racism so utterly evil and need to be ended completely? Hey, why is it that the unborn, the elderly, the disabled, 
prisoners and immigrants all deserve protection. Hey, why isn't a person's value determined by their usefulness, by their productivity, by their spending power? Hey, why shouldn't we just go back to leaving unwanted children on top of the trash piles? Most people would just say, I don't know, but it just see, it seems right. It seems right. I, I, I feel something in me that all that stuff just isn't right. And just like those that find themselves acting like their father and like their mother, just like my boys taking steps in the same way that I do, we have something that has been placed inside of us from the moment of our creation that is an imprint on our hearts and our minds and our souls that we carry with us deep down. I think that we know and we feel the value and the worth given by God. But here's the problem. We're living in a time and a place where we want all the values and we want all the flourishing that comes with the kingdom of God, but we really would just rather reject God the king. So we want the kingdom, but we don't really want the king. We want the stuff that has been created, but we'd really just rather figure out how to live with all of it in our own way, wouldn't we? This is what's happening all around us. And I think inside of all of us, there's this knowledge that every other living person is an embodied soul, not in the way that God has made other creation, but here's what it says in just a few verses later in Genesis 2, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. That's different. Um, we were made in the image of God. Like he took his own hands, created us out of the dust and breathed his breath into our nostrils, his life into us. And so, hey, with a simple idea today that, that we were created in the image of God, I would like for us to take three things that I think will help us understand a little bit more, <clears throat> a little bit more what God was up to when he created male and female. First thing I want to give you, and we'll spend most of our time here, I want us to look at the purpose of the Imago Dei. What is the purpose that God has created us? Three things inside the purpose of the Imago Dei. One, God has created us for relationship. Look back at verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here we go, verse 29. And God said, behold, I have given you. Stop right there. For the first time in all of Scripture, God's language in the creation story turns into the first person. He says, I have given you. That language, I and you, that is personal language. We see here God's intention from the beginning was to create people for interpersonal communion with himself and with one another. In, I was probably in second grade, first or second grade. I was a good boy. I went to Sunday school just about uh, every Sunday. It's not by my choice. This is what, what my parents decided I was going to do. And I had this class I was a part of, and it was like second grade boys. You can imagine how fun that class was. And uh, it, it was the, the teacher that was teaching us was like this older 
woman who had volunteered to teach second grade boys, and uh, we were the worst to her, man. We really were. And I'll never forget, like, this is ingrained in, in my memory. She's teaching us, and I think the story, she's on the flannel graph, you know, where she's, like, telling the story, and she's putting the pictures up there. And it was the story of Daniel in the lion's den, which you would just think, like, for second grade boys, that's a pretty good one. Like, there's a chance some guys are getting eaten by lions today. Like, we should pay attention to this. This could be cool. But, you know, we were just always giving her a hard time, and I, we were off the walls. And I remember she's in the middle of telling her story, and one of the boys raises his hand, and she's like, okay, you have a question about Daniel and Lion's Den? And he's like, I have a question, yes. Why did God create people? <laughs> and her eyes get, like, about this big, you know, and she's like, why did I volunteer to teach this class? <laughs> you know? And uh, I remember she was like, I think she was totally freaked out, but she was trying to give a wise answer. And so she formed it like in, in the form of a question. She said, well, do you think maybe it was because he was lonely? And I, you know, I was like, even at that age, she, got, she went on to finish telling the story of Daniel and Lion's Den. And even at that age, I was like, mm, something doesn't sound right about that. I, I don't know. And now, like, in my 40s, as a man who's, like, been following Jesus for a while, I just recognize the problem with that idea is that if God created us because he needed something from us, we're in trouble. <laughs> we're in trouble. Like, most days, honestly, I just don't feel like I have a lot to offer the God that created the universe and is sustaining all things. I don't have a lot to offer. Like, if the one that carved out Everest and intimately knows the places of the deep and the sea ever comes to me asking for something, I just feel like that's going to be a bad day for both of us. <laughs> you know what I mean? God was not lonely. This is not the reason that he created us. You and I get lonely. You and I have needs, but not him. Here's what Michael Reeves says in his real, this beautiful little book uh, called Delighting in the Trinity. I highly recommend. Really devotional. Uh, Michael Reeves says this. Everything changes when it comes to the Father, Son, and Spirit. Here is a God who is not essentially lonely, but who has been loving for all eternity as the Father has loved the Son in the Spirit. Loving others is not a strange or novel thing for this God at all. It is the root of all who he is. This is the truth. God has always been in a relationship Father, Son, and Spirit in this overflowing love relationship. The uncreated creator needed nothing, yet created everything for you and I to enjoy him. Hey, this should set us free to know that God created the world and everything in it just because he wanted to. <laughs> it was good. It was exactly what he had in mind. It was just as he planned it. Hey, God did not like come to the, 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 the little toy machine, put the quarter in, turn the wheel, and just get whatever came out. He got exactly what he planned. He got exactly what he wanted. And so, man, I just want to say, like, I know there are people in this room today. You feel rejected. You feel like, man, I just don't know what my place is here. I just don't know how I fit in. I struggle to forgive myself. I struggle to forgive others. I struggle to love myself. I struggle uh, to love others. And I just want to say to you, uh, God has created you exactly as you are with a purpose. You, he could have created anything. Of all the things he could have created, he made you as one of his 
best ideas and he desires relationship with you. And in Jesus, he has done everything to have relationship with you. He's done everything necessary. Hey, my friends, this should change the way that we relate to God. This should, should change the way that we see our relationship with him, but also the way that we see our relationships with one another, shouldn't it? I just want to ask you, like, where do you feel like you need relational grace today? Some of you need grace to have relationship better with your spouse. And I just want to say, like, what if you saw your spouse not as one who defines you, but as a co-image bearer with God that he has intentionally given to you to help mirror who he is to the world? What if you saw your spouse that way, your husband or your wife? Some of you really need grace with your children today, and what if, what if you saw your kids not as those that can fulfill you, but as little images of the one who truly can? And as crazy as they are sometimes, what if we recognize that God is actually shaping them, creating them to be more of his image, to show off more of who he is to the world, and therefore, our jobs as parents are to be taken really seriously. I think it would help us to to look at how we relate to our coworkers, our family members, our friends. How would it change our relationships if we saw others as the very image and likeness of the uncreated creator God thought up as one of his very best ideas? How would that change the way you relate to other people? So the first thing in that purpose is God's created us for relationships. Second thing I want us to see, God actually created us to be a reflection to reflect him, at its most basic definition, an image is simply a reflection, isn't it? The more a photograph reflects the true nature of the subject of the photograph, the better the picture is, right? The more blurry, the more distorted, the worse the photo is. This is why we keep buying iPhones. <laughs> so at its, at its most like basic definition for what it is to be imaging God... It means to be mirroring what God is like to the world. Here's how this was meant to work. Hey, you want to know what God the creator is like? Look at his people. Do you want to know if God is patient, is loving, is kind? Do you want to know if, if God is long-suffering, is gentle, is full of self-control? Look at his people. But what do we think of when I say the word image, I, th I, I think we tend to, to feel like there are really two definitions to the word image. Tell me if this is right. One, an image is, a, is like a photograph reflecting, showing a reflection of what is actually true. The second definition that I think we like to work with for image is actually the thing that we project on the world, hoping to convince other people that it's true even when it's really not true, right? That's the image that we try to project. And the truth of being created in the likeness of God is that our image is not something we get to define, but something that has already been defined for us by God, our creator. And I just want to say, like, in a time when all of culture and all the people around us are asking, what does it really mean to be human? What does it really mean to be alive? What does it really mean to be free? Hey, what does it mean to be uh, most myself? And we're thinking that we can define for one another who we are. We come to the first, first couple of pages of the Bible, and here's what we see. We're actually most human, most alive in our humanity. We're most who we're supposed to be when we recognize 
that we're actually created in the image of God, meant to live for God and live in relationship with God. This is what defines us. We're most human when we're not trying to be something else, but we're actually just receiving who it is that God has made us to be and living in that place. So he's created us for relationship. He's created us for reflecting. Third thing that I want you to see in the idea of the purpose is that God has has created us to be representatives, for representing. Did you know that we are meant to be rulers with God? 28 again says, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Again, we've mentioned this, but the words that we're reading, these are written for us, but they're not, they're not written directly to us. These words would have meant something really specific to the post-Exodus Israelites that were living in a, in a time and a place in the ancient Near East that was pr- predominantly controlled by ruling monarchs. So those nations had kings. They had kings. And what was said about those kings in those nations was, hey, that king is in the image of God. They would sometimes be actually called gods, or they would say, this is a king who is made in the image of God. And everyone else in that kingdom was like lower than, subservient, had less value, had less dignity. And what they would do is they would set up these sculptures, these statues, these images of that lowercase g God, the king, all over the kingdom, throughout the kingdom, so that the people of the kingdom would remember and would, would look at and constantly see what the ruler of that kingdom, and they would remember the, the king and the kingdom, and they would remember his reign. Well, here's the problem. This is one of the, the defining characteristics that we see set the people of Israel apart from the other nations. They don't make images of God. They were actually told that they can't do that. They were to worship the one true God, and they didn't need images made in his likeness because he already made images in his likeness. Do you see it? It's beautiful. And they were meant to be living embodied souls to do the work of at least two things, ruling and filling. Ruling meaning no longer is it just the work of the kings of the nations to rule, But this word comes to God's people, and it says, Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the living, every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the work given to us of cultivating, of creativity, of building, of multiplying. This is this is us doing the good work of creating hospitals and orphanages and schools, and farms. This is God coming to us and saying, hey, take what I've made and work it in such a way that you'll bring about continued flourishing and the, a, a place that people can be sustained. This is the work of ruling. And then he gives us the work of filling. Last week, we saw that God comes to an empty canvas, and in the liturgy of creation, he begins to fill what was empty. And he adds beauty to the emptiness and to the void, to what was nothing. And now he comes to man and he says, hey, I want you to join me in this work. This is a big deal. He says, be fruitful and multiply, not because 
you know, God was just saying like, hey, have fun making babies along the way. He was saying, hey, I've given you the gift of procreation. You are to act as my representation. You are to show off all the good. You're to show off uh, all, all the ways that I bring life and I bring flourishing to my kingdom. You're to do that and you're to multiply so that throughout my kingdom, my goodness and my glory would be seen. In the book of Habakkuk, there's this fascinating thing that God says to his people. And in case you haven't like cracked open Habakkuk in a minute, uh, it's this prophetic book of rebuke and lament. And in the middle of God rebuking his people for the ways that they have disobeyed him, he says this thing. In one way or another, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's going to happen. That's my plan. And the plan that God had was to do it. This was his desire that he would do it through his people. You see it? So the story of Genesis is God giving people created in his image the ability to rule and reign. And then he gives them a choice. Are you going to use that power? Are you going to use that ability to rule and reign in a way that brings flourishing and life? and joy for everything around you, or will you use that power, will you use that ability to rule and reign in a way that brings harm and division and brings destruction? God puts Adam and Eve in the middle of the garden. He creates everything, and he says, it's really good, but it's alive, and now it needs to be cultivated. Now, I'm calling you, my son and my daughter, to stand in the middle of this garden in my place and rule in the same way that I would rule. You see it? Uh, earlier this year, I was, on a, I was on an airplane, and something caught my ear that I, I felt like I'd never heard before. I don't remember a captain saying this, but the captain came on over the radio, and, like, I don't know if you recognize this. I don't know if you've, like, seen this on the news People haven't been exactly, like, kind or charitable to flight attendants. Like, in the last couple of years, they're not everyone's, like, favorite person when you're on an airplane. And they kind of, you know, they get the brunt of it. And so the captain comes on, and he says, hey, I just want you to know that my flight attendants are going to be moving throughout the cabin. And I have given them my proxy. So the, the same authority that I carry as the captain on this airplane, I've given it to them. And I want you to know that if they ask you to do something, it's as if the captain himself is asking you to do something. If, if they tell you something, it's, it's as if the captain himself is saying it directly to you. And I'm hearing this over the loudspeaker, and I'm seeing this guy that's a flight attendant. And is like, you know, he's like completely disheveled. His shirt is halfway untucked, and his tie is halfway tied. And he's trying to figure out how to close the overhead compartment. And I'm hearing this, and I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking... Betcha he couldn't fly this plane. Like if this, if you have trouble, Captain, I think we're all in trouble because this guy is not going to get it done. And here's the truth. Um, we, in a similar way, have been given something that we really can't carry. Our problem with us um, walking out the purpose of the Imago Dei is not our incompetency. Our problem is our sin. That's the second thing quickly I want to show you is the problem of the Imago Dei. We have this great idea that people, you and I, across the whole earth would fulfill the purposes of relationship, reflection, representing God. And the problem is that a couple of pages into the Bible, 
the image gets totally distorted. In the story and in our lives today, we're just bad rulers. We're bad rulers. We're a mix of motives. Like, I feel this in my own heart. I feel this in my own life. Like, there are, there are ways that I, I have motivation to help and to do good and to try to bring life and to bring flourishing. But also, we feel the pull and the motivation to selfishness and to actually bring division and actually bring harm to the world around us. Instead of presenting the photograph of who God is, we have presented a distorted picture of God in a thousand ways. We have inverted ourselves in God's place. And so instead of being uh, the creation that images the creator, actually what we've decided to do is create images that we like and we've chosen to worship them. In Genesis chapter 11, after the chapter uh, Genesis 11, the language of the image of God, it starts to become replaced more and more with the language of idolatry. A new theme emerges. Instead of relating to God as man's highest good, we began to replace the need for God with created things. So that idea of reflection, we're holding up the mirror, we're showing the world the glory of God, we're reflecting him out, we turn the mirror back at ourselves. And we start to say, actually, we're going to image the idols that we've created instead of imaging the one that has created us. This is a problem, and it starts in Genesis, and this theme carries all the way through the New Testament, all the way to you and I today. Romans 1 says it like this, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Here it is, verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Hey, we read passages like this and we go, whew, good thing we don't carve out sculptures or bow down to them. And, and we're not off the hook because the truth about you and I is the only difference between us and, and the, the ancient Near Eastern culture is there's just way more stuff to worship now. There's way more stuff for you and I to go after, to bow down to. David Foster Wallace, this author and uh, essayist, really brilliant guy, was not a Christian. Um, he actually, he, he uh, tragically killed himself in 2008 just wrestling with his own humanity. And someone asked him if he was actually an atheist. And this is what he said. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice is what we worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. 
And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And he's right. We do this. It's not a question of if we will turn our hearts to worship other things. It's simply a question of what it's going to be. And C.S. Lewis describes clearly for, for us the problem in his work, Mere Christianity. This is what he said. God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. Friends, we have been offered the purest of fuel for our hearts to run on, and we just cannot stop trying to run on everything else. Hey, God says, in my love for you, I offer you really beautiful, good gifts like relationship, love for others, sex and money and food and drink to enjoy. And we get the things and we go, that's it. That's what I needed. That's what my heart can run on. Surely I don't need anything else. We were created by God, for God, to know God, to breathe him in, to walk with him in the cool of the day. This is why we were created. But in our, in our love for our own idols, we've rejected God. This is the problem. But in his great love for us, <laughs> In his great love for the ones that he has created in his image to have relationship with, he does not leave us there. There's a promise. Quickly, the last thing I want you to see is the promise of the Imago Dei. I want to give you a promise because this, this problem is not the end of our story. We're not going to be three pages into the whole Bible before everything goes completely wrong. But when it does, immediately, God has a plan. Jesus, our Savior, jumps on to the pages of Scripture. Genesis 3.15, there's this promise that the offspring of man is going to put, come and put everything right. God is saying sin will not have the last word. Death will not have the last word. The enemy that has come to deceive and has come to steal will not have the last word from the very beginning. God had a plan and had a promise to redeem. And theologians, they have this super nerdy word for this. It's Latin, proto-euangelion, and it just means the first gospel. This is the foreshadowing of Jesus who is to come that will be the rescuer for us, and it shows up all the way back in Genesis, in this story. God is going to promise that he himself is going to come and bind himself to the humanity that he has made in his image. He's going to come as one in our image that will show us a different way to rule, will show us a different way to live. And more than that, 
more than just showing us the way to live, he's gonna actually come and put right all the things that we've broken. This is really good news for us. So quickly, let me show you three things and then we'll end. Do you remember the, the purpose that I gave you? The purpose of relationship, the purpose of reflection, the purpose of representing God? Let me just show you quickly. Jesus does it perfectly <laughs> for us. Jesus had the perfect relationship with the Father. John chapter 10, Jesus says these words, I and the Father are one. I know the Father and the Father knows me. Perfect relationship. Perfect reflection. If you ever read the beginning of Hebrews, it says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Where we have gotten it wrong, Jesus did it perfectly for us. Jesus was the perfect representative. John chapter 5, Jesus tells us, I only do what I see the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does also. He has done it perfectly, friends, in our place. He's not left us to figure out how to do it on our own. He has done it for us in our place. Jesus comes, does it perfectly, perfect relationship, reflection, representative, not just to show us what we have gotten wrong, but to actually get it right for us in our place that by faith in that work, in that finished job, we could be brought back into relationship with God the Father. And by the power of the Spirit, we could actually be people who rightly represent the image of God to the world around us. So as we close, my friends, today, we're going to walk out of this place. We're going to go to lunch. Some of you are going to have time with family. We're going to go watch the football games with friends. Not just as people who have agency to choose our own way. But we're going to walk out of this place as embodied souls carrying the true image of the one true king, making known what he's like, mirroring him, representing him, filling the earth with the knowledge of his glory. May we be people that do that today. Amen? Would you stand up with me as we close? We're going to come to the table as we do each week, and we're going to remember this meal, this feast. And it may not feel like a feast because it's a little piece of bread and it's a little cup of wine, but this is the feast of the new covenant, Jesus' broken body and blood shed for us, broken for us. And uh, I, I want to invite you to just recognize we come to this meal today with really good news because here's what 2 Corinthians 3 says, that we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. We're being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Hey, he's not done with us. <laughs> we, get to, we get to come to the table today, recognize he's still doing a work in us. We receive his body, we receive his blood, and we know that one degree of glory to the next, he's continuing to change us. He made us in his image once, and he's continuing in our brokenness to create us more into the image of his son. Friends, this is good news, and so if you're a follower of Jesus today, here's what I want to ask you to do. 
come. We're going to have tables front and back on both sides. We've got juice and wine. Just obey your conscience on that. And I want to invite you to gather up in groups with friends or with your spouse, with a, with a buddy or maybe somebody that you don't know. And remember, it's this meal that unites us, even if you don't even know each other. We're brothers. We're sisters. So I want to invite you to come and receive it. And with bread in your hand and, and wine in your hand, say, God, we thank you that you're not done with us. We thank you that you're still working on us. We thank you that your plan to, to fill the whole earth with your glory, you're going to accomplish that one day. And until then, you're continuing to make us look like Jesus. I want to invite you to do that, okay? Hey, if you're not a follower of Jesus, man, thank you so much for being here. It's super courageous for you to step into this room and just hear what we have to say about Jesus, our Savior. I, I want to just say to you, you are so welcome to be at everything that we do. You're welcome in our groups. You're welcome in our gatherings. This is one meal that I would just ask you to not partake of because this is a meal of faith. This is us saying the, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus in our place is our only hope. If that's not your only hope, you've not been buried with Christ in baptism, then I, I just want to invite you to come and, and observe and be a part of it. It will not be weird for you to not take this meal. It would actually be weird if you did take this meal because it's a meal of faith. We're going to have some prayers that are up on the screen that maybe you can process through and start to, to just ask God, where are you at with faith? Where are you at with following Jesus? And uh, I would love for you to do that, okay? For everyone, everyone else, if you're a follower of Jesus, come receive the body and blood of Jesus broken and shed for you when you're ready. Come and receive.